Heavenly Father, we ask that you give us the eyes to see your yes to us in Jesus, your faithfulness, your trustworthiness. Might you apply this reality to our hearts and might you change us by it. Amen. So what leads you to trust someone? What leads you to trust someone? I remember the first time that I faced a ball machine in the cricket nets. Ball machines are about this high and they've got two big wheels on them. They go really fast and they direct the ball exactly to where you want to practice your batting. And so they're super effective for batting practice. I was 16 at the time and my coach thought it was a good idea to try to face some deliveries at 140 kilometers per hour. That's as fast as the pros. He was my coach. He had my best interests at heart. Surely I can trust him, right? Anyway, so I was 16 and the idea sounded fun, so I went ahead with it, put my helmet on, bat in hand, and I could hear the wheels increasing in speed as I was, as I was waiting for the delivery. I had to wait about 30 seconds for the wheels to get to speed, and then the coach signaled that he was just about to put a ball through the machine, and before I had time to say, I can do this, the ball smashed the back, net, the back of the net. I didn't even move. And so I nearly freaked out and walked off, but I thought, no, I can do this. This is the foolishness of a 16-year-old boy. I can do this. The pros can do it. I can do it. And so I gave it another go, and he put another ball in, and this time I moved because I moved before he put the ball in. But that's about it. My front foot moved, my back didn't, and it skimmed me on the right shoulder and then hit the back of the net. What led me to entrust my life to my coach in this moment? Besides it being a fun idea at the time, I trusted that he knew what he was, he was doing. I trusted that he wasn't going to put me through something that was completely stupid. Maybe I shouldn't have been so sure. We trust people who care about us and who put our best interests first. Last week, we started a sermon series that is looking into the letter of 2 Corinthians. And in it, we... Um, we began to see that the Apostle Paul isn't living up to the expectations of the Corinthian church. Now, Corinth was a wealthy city. It had an important trade route going through the city, and its wealth was built on this trade route going through the city. So it was a wealthy city, but not only a wealthy city, it was a Greek city. And so, like most big Greek cities, it loved the latest ideas and philosophies, and they, they loved the most impressive Uh, Speakers, eloquent speakers, speakers that could embellish a story, that would keep you fixed. They they, they loved their speakers with their witty remarks and their latest ideas. So it was a city of money, philosophy and gods. In Corinth alone, archaeologists have uncovered about 36 sacred sites and each one was dedicated to different gods. There were gods for agriculture, there were gods for this and that. They were all promising, if you offered to them, they were promising you success in that particular part of life. And the Corinthian Christians in the church in Corinth, they were being affected by this culture around them. They wanted leaders that were wealthy, like the leaders of the city. They wanted leaders that were wealthy and that could promise wealth. They wanted leaders that were persuasive in speech, impressive in rhetoric, just like the philosophical leaders around them. 
They wanted leaders who could promise a God who would give them success. That's what they were after. In chapter 11 of this book, Paul calls these leaders that they were after super apostles. But now enter the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was a tent maker. He earned just enough to live. He worked hard with his hands. He had been imprisoned. He'd been beaten. He'd been stoned. He'd been starved. He was weak. He was unimpressive. His speaking was nothing to write home about. And he spoke of a Messiah, a king, who was seemingly weak, who'd suffered and had been crucified. The Apostle Paul didn't fit their expectations. They thought he wasn't the real deal. And more specifically with the passage at hand tonight, the Corinthians thought they had reason to believe that he wasn't trustworthy. Paul takes his criticism really seriously. He knew how important trust is. If the Corinthians are going to take his message seriously, let alone himself, they're going to have to know that he is trustworthy, that his message is therefore trustworthy. They need to know that he has their best interests at heart. And so in the passage this evening, Paul addresses an accusation the Corinthians had against him. They've accused Paul of not being trustworthy. And as we see how he responds, we get a glimpse into the heart of the apostle. And we get three glimpses into his heart. We see three things as we get a glimpse into his heart. We see a heart that's thoroughly set on God. We see a heart that isn't only set on God, it's set on God's faithfulness. And we see a heart that's full of the love of God. So first, we see a heart set on God. Now, before Paul specifically addresses the situation in Corinth, he sounds a bit more like the proud leaders that he's addressing to begin with. He says in verse 12, now this is our boast. This is our boast. That sounds like the super apostles. Paul's boasting. And as we see in this letter in 2 Corinthians, um, Paul often is a little cheeky as he um, tries to unweave their arguments. He wants to show them that their arguments are out of whack and he does that often with a bit of sarcasm. And so here Paul boasts. He boasts that he and Timothy have acted with integrity and sincerity. They're the words in your um, translation. Some in the Corinthian church are saying that he's not trustworthy, that he's fickle, that he's two-faced. But Paul declares with boldness from the outset, our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves and especially in uh, ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you in integrity and sincerity from God. I thoroughly recommend having the Bible before you. I'm going to be going through the passage um, sort of progressively, so it will help having the Bible there for you. So that's what he says. He's, he's, been, um, he's, been, he's been acting in integrity and sincerity uh, from God. Now, your translations um, say he's been acting in godly sincerity. But it could well be uh, translated, and the old NIVs that have just been replaced had that he was acting in integrity and sincerity that are from God. So instead of godly sincerity, it's in sincerity from God. And I think those two words are really important to what Paul's saying here. Paul's boasting not in his own holiness and sincerity, but the holiness or the integrity and sincerity that are from God. And in the next sentence... Paul attributes his way of life to the grace of God. We live not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. That is, we live according to God's gift. God's gifting us to live the way we live. The super apostles boasted 
of all that they could do. They, they, they listed their credentials, their internal virtues, and their own abilities. But Paul boasts in God's work in his life. Paul's saying here two things at the same time. He's saying, yes, I've acted with moral integrity. But that's not because I'm virtuous in and of myself. It's because God's worked in my life. His grace has worked in my life to change me. Paul isn't boasting about himself. He's boasting about God. And he goes on in verse 13. I hope that as you have understood me in part, so they've understood him in part, they they have received his message. He hopes that they come to understand him fully, that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. So here we have Paul boasting again, but it's not about himself. It's about God's work in the Corinthians' lives. So we're beginning to get a glimpse into Paul's heart here. Now, if I was to get a a spiritual scalpel and cut into the hearts of the super apostles, I'd probably see hearts that were primarily concerned about how people saw them. Their hearts would be concerned about their own reputation, that they were seen as impressive leaders. But somehow, Paul's heart's desire are set on something else. Not himself, but on God. And now this is a Copernican revolution. And it happens to all Christians. When you become a Christian... We're sort of thrown off center. We ourselves are thrown from the center of our lives and someone much more worthy to be at the center, someone you want at the center of your life, becomes the center of your life. Paul's boast is God, even when it comes to how he had acted. God's grace has actively been at work in the life of Paul. So not only is Paul's heart set on God's transforming grace, His heart is set on God's faithfulness. Now, this is verses 15 to 17. But I was confident of this. I plan to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I plan to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. When I planned this, did I do it lightly? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say yes, yes, and no, no? So here's the accusation. Some in the Corinthian church were already suspicious of Paul. And then when they see Paul potentially being a little bit unfaithful or untrustworthy, they pounce. Paul had visited, um, sorry, Paul had planned to visit the Corinthians, as we read um, in the 1 Corinthians reading. Paul had planned to visit them on his way to Macedonia, on his way back. But after the Corinthians had received his first letter so badly... They received the first letter really badly. He made a surprise visit to the Corinthians. And that was a hard visit. He calls this the painful visit. And the painful visit to the Corinthian Christians led him to change his plans. And they see this change of plans as Paul being untrustworthy. Is it true that you just say yes, yes when it's convenient and no, no when it's not convenient? Can we trust your word, Paul? That's their accusation. And at first glance, this accusation seems pretty superficial, insignificant. Plans change. That's life. But Paul takes this really seriously. If they think the apostles' word can't be trusted, what does that say about the trustworthiness of the God of which he speaks? And so verse 18, 
But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in me it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. So Paul, as a tent maker, is putting an unmovable stake in the ground. God is faithful to his promises. In verse 20, no matter how many promises God has made, I mean, that could mean all the promises that um, we read in the Old Testament. So every single verse that comes across as a promise, we could list and, and, and God's come through with them. That's probably correct. I mean, that would be correct. But I think the best way to understand what's going on here is by way of God's covenant with his people. Okay, you've got to keep working hard with me. Okay, keep working hard. There are a number of covenants God makes with his people in the Old Testament, and they each involve God making promises and asking the covenant partner to fulfill certain requirements in response. They're like partnerships with a common goal, and they're always in some way to to bless the world through this covenant partnership. But in response to all the covenants God establishes with his people, his covenant partners end up being hopeless partners in the covenant. Israel is as representative of humanity at large, but Israel, um, as God's covenant people, they end up worshipping other gods. They become a nation of deceit, not a light to the world, a nation of deceit and wickedness. They put before God's face their covenant partner a fat big no. And so what will God do in response to to the unfaithfulness of his covenant partners. Will God stay true to his promises to bring blessing despite their unfaithfulness? And that's where it gets, and this is where it gets particularly interesting. So I want to focus on the covenant God makes with Abraham. Assessing your eyes, and I'm seeing sort of tired eyes out there, but keep on working with me. So back in Abraham's day, you didn't make an oath by signing a contract. This is how you do it. It's much more vivid. Much more dramatic. You'd take an animal, you'd slate in two, and you'd put the two halves um, across from each other. And then the covenant partners would walk through that animal. And in effect, they'd be saying to each other, if I do not keep the terms of this covenant, may I be cut in two, and may my flesh be used um, to feed the birds of the air just like the carcasses before us. It's vivid, it's dramatic, it's intense. But by doing this, They'd be binding themselves to the contract. And so in Genesis 15, when God asks Abraham to prepare the animals, he knew exactly what was about to happen. It was about to be a contract ceremony. Um, But he never would have expected what happened next. So from Genesis 15, verse 17, it says, But when the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared. Now, the language to, uh, used to describe the smoking fire pot and blazing torch is similar language used to describe God's presence on Mount Sinai when he appeared to his people and also um, the presence in the blazing fire as, as he led the, the people of Israel through the desert. Anyway, it's language that signifies God's presence. But it wasn't God's presence that would have surprised Abraham. It's what happened next. God passed through the pieces Alone. Now, history tells us that when a king conquered a vassal people, a captured people, the king would 
most often make the vassal people walk through the, the animals themselves, not including the king. So um, it'd be the king saying to the vassal people, if you break the covenant I'm about to make with you, you know, this will happen to you. Sometimes the king would walk through too. But here, God is walking through alone. God is saying, no matter how faithful or faithless Abraham and your descendants you are to the covenant I'm establishing with you to bless you and, and your descendants, no matter how faithless you are going to be, I will be faithful. God walked through the Isle of Cut Animals himself. He will bring to pass the promises with a wholehearted yes. That's what he's promising in that ceremony. He will come through no matter, no matter if it means taking upon himself the curse of a broken covenant. Think of the cross. No matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. So in response to our no, the people of Israel's consistent no to God in the covenant, God says a clear yes. Because he is faithful to his promises. Now all that talk about covenants in Genesis 15 is for us to understand verse 20. Paul knows that God is faithful. God takes his responsibility to fulfill his promises seriously. When he makes a promise, it's not fickle. He's not two-faced. When he says something, it's going to be done. His yes is a yes. And so in response to that, Paul is also like that. That's what Paul's trying to say. On to verse 20. And so through the amen spoken by us, so, 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 sorry, so through him, Christ, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Okay, we're still in deep waters here, so keep working hard. Amen can be translated as yes, but it's more literally translated as so be it. And so Paul is saying here that his words and his life are an echo or a confirmation of the yes spoken first by God in Christ. His life and words are an amen to the yes that God proclaimed in Jesus. And verses 21 and 22, God's faithful yes to us wasn't just spoken in a historical event 2,000 years ago when, when Jesus lived, died and rose again. But his yes, his faithfulness to uh, us reaches us even today. That's what, what I think Paul's saying here in verses 21 and 22. God, who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ, he anointed us, he set his seal of ownership on us, and he put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. That is, the Holy Spirit in our lives, active in our lives, changing us, is the continuation of God's faithfulness. God's yes in Jesus reaches us by the Spirit, Guaranteeing what is to come, guaranteeing, guaranteeing, guaranteeing our future. God's yes to us continues to work in us until the day God makes all things new. That's the faithfulness and the trustworthiness of God that we need to hang on to. So, it brings us to our final glimpse into Paul's heart. We've seen a heart that boasts in God, that has God at the center. We've seen a heart that at the center is God's yes. And from that yes flows Paul's life and speech. And now we see a glimpse 
into a deep love Paul has from the Corinthians that can only come from the God who loved Paul first. So, Paul finally comes back to the issue at hand, the accusation, verse 23. I call God as my witness and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that my, uh, we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it, because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. Paul's basically saying, my change of plans weren't because I'm fickle. I changed them because I wanted what was best for you. Paul is thoroughly committed to their joy. So he told them of the plans, like I said before, before he knew how they'd respond to the first letter, 1 Corinthians. And when he found out how they responded, his plans changed. Presumably, if he returned in person as originally planned, as the apostle of Jesus, as the apostle of Jesus, he would have had to confront and even discipline those people in the church causing the Corinthian Christians to stumble. If there are leaders in the church saying that the Christian life is all about success, you promise yourself to God and he'll promise you wealth, then how are you possibly going to follow a Messiah who suffered? How are you going to accept a message from an apostle whose life is characterized by suffering too? He would have had to discipline the teachers saying this. It's just not true. And so instead of returning, as he said, he, he wanted to give them time. He, he wrote another letter. This would give the super apostles and their particular followers a chance to see their ways and change. Now, I think as well, this is a bit of an, an echo of Jesus too. Uh, Jesus is patient with us. He's patient with all people. He's patient um, with them, waiting for them to see his grace and to change. Um, until the day he does return in person. For Paul, the situation may have changed, and so to his plans, but his motives never changed. His motive was always to act for their joy, for their good. His motive has been as constant as God's faithfulness to his promises. Paul's life and his words are an echo of God's yes in Jesus. And that's what Paul wants them to see. His motives never changed. Paul goes on, For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I've grieved? I wrote as I did, so that when I come, I would not be distressed by those who have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would share my joy. We're really seeing the Apostle's heart at the moment. And do you see the mutuality there? This beautiful mutual love. If they're grieved, he's grieved. If they're distressed, he's distressed. If they rejoice, he rejoices. This is what genuine love looks like in a relationship. When people go through things together and experience life together... They go through the ups and downs together. They rejoice and, and grieve together. That's what a relationship's like, a relationship characterized by love. And that's the relationship Paul has. Verse 4. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. So we made it to the end of the passage. Woohoo! <laughs> Verses 12 to 14 showed us Paul's heart boasting in God, God at the center. Verses 15 to 22 showed that at the center 
was God's yes. It motivated Paul. And verses 23 to 4 show us the depth of Paul's love for the Corinthians, even though they don't return the favour. I mean, that's very godlike. Ultimately, Paul writes, not so that they trust in Paul. Ultimately, if, if the result of this sermon is that you trust Paul, that's not the greatest result. Paul writes this so that they trust him, so that they trust his message and the one behind his message. He wants them to trust that in Jesus, God's promises have come true, have been fulfilled, have got a big fat yes stamped over them in Jesus. That's what he wants them to trust. And that's so that we put our trust in God too. God has our interests at heart. He walked the path of faithfulness, even though it cost him so much, he was metaphorically cut in two. And Paul's life is the amen to God's yes. Paul's an echo of Jesus. It's God's yes in Jesus that he wants us to hear through these words in Corinthians. Now, in closing, I can't leave you all um, without having a, a spiritual scalpel put to your heart. We can't take this opportunity, looking into Paul's heart, uh, not without looking into our own hearts. So I've got some questions. Put a spiritual scalpel to your heart. If I, if I cut you open spiritually, how scary does that sound? Would I see a heart boasting in God? The question might be um, more helpfully put. Do you see any goodness that comes from you uh, as coming from your own willpower, your own hard work, your own internal virtue? I'm a good person because I'm a good person. That's who I am. Or do you see any integrity that you have as itself as well being a gift of God's work in your life, the result of God's grace? Because your answer to those questions will um, result in you either being or tending towards pride or towards humility and joy and thankfulness. That's the first question. Second, if I put a spiritual scalpel to your heart, would I see a heart fixated on God's undying yes to you, his commitment to you? Now, the answer to this question will be um, determined by, I think, how committed we are to each other. God's yes to, um, to Paul led him to have a, uh, a tenacious commitment to the people of God. So how committed are you to the growth of fellow Christians? Do you pray for each other? Do you um, listen really well to each other when, they, when, when people are talking, working out, how can I be praying for them during the week? Um, do you show your commitment um, to each other by the way you um, show up to growth group, um, by the way you take seriously how you have said you'll, you'll help out? How seriously do you take your commitment to each other? For Paul, his commitment was as, as thoroughgoing as it could get. And it was because, it was because God showed a commitment to him that was totally undeserving. So that's my second question. Third, thirdly and finally, would I see a heart whose love for fellow believers is so sincere that when 
They go through the ups, you go through the ups. And when they go through the downs, you go through the downs with them. It's a life that's connected together. Because as we'll enact in just a moment the Lord's Supper, we live a life that's connected in Christ. And sincere love shows care by the way we go through the ups and downs with each other. Go through life together and experience it together. So there are three questions that hopefully will help you work out where your heart is. But those three questions aren't there to make you feel bad or to make you try harder. This is really important. Trying harder and feeling bad are never going to change your heart. That's for certain. The only way your heart is going to change is to look beyond Paul's heart to the one he proclaimed. To look at God's yes in Jesus. That's how your heart changes. Your heart changes by grace. We saw that when we looked at John Newton. We saw that when we um, looked at how the Apostle Paul changed from being a, a persecutor of Christians to a, a lover of Christians. It was all the, the grace of God that changed him. So don't let those questions make you feel bad, make you try harder even. Make them look to Je- make you look make them look make you look to Jesus and see his unfailing yes to you. Make your need look I've lost that sentence. It's getting late. Make your need cause you to pray. To Jesus, whose grace is enough to transform your life. Trust him because he has our best interests at heart. I'm going to pray now for us all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are so faithful to us, even though we're so undeserving of your faithfulness and your grace. You have come through on your word, you've, you've stamped us with a big yes. You've deposited your Holy Spirit in us even now and you will get us to the end. We pray that you change our hearts to be more like Paul's, more like Jesus. Help us put you at the centre and we boast in you as being the, the worker of grace in our lives. Help us have at the centre of our lives your yes to us, your posture of grace. Might it compel all that we say and do. And we pray that you might connect us together in love, that um, among us here at 6pm at at St Mark's, you might be uniting us in love, that you might be guiding us as we seek to live life together, the ups and the downs. Father, we thank you for your grace and we thank you that you are working in our hearts even now. Amen. We're going to make our way towards the back of the service, so uh, the hall. So stand up and, and walk to the back.